Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hello there, I'm Richard Scott and welcome to the Podcast Hour, the place where each week I share some great new stuff to listen to, drawn from the more than 700,000 podcasts out there today. Coming up, Murder in Paradise and the unsolved killing of two British backpackers in the Caribbean 40 years ago. So you were trying to save Chris and Peter from the monster who is your father? We lied to him and told him we couldn't find him. Then what's it like to have serious family money? He would take us out to lunch when we were 18 and tell us how much money we had. It was a lot to take in. My older sister actually had a blood sugar problem, um, and he told her and then she fainted. Oh, God. Word nerds, scrabble geeks and language freaks are going to enjoy something rhymes with purple. In the House of Commons, sword fighting is not allowed. Sword fighting is strictly taboo. Backstabbing, of course, is quite a different matter. And before we go, designing a new dream city in northern India. That was the goal of modernism. The goal of Shandagar. To make something clean and neutral and good for everyone. And next time you hear something good, then do let me know about it. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, you can find us at RNZ Podcast Hour. Back in 1978, the bodies of two British backpackers were found in the sea off the Guatemala coast in Central America. It was obvious to everyone that Chris Farmer and Peter Frampton had been murdered, but for nearly 40 years, nobody was arrested over their killings. The prime suspect was Silas Dwayne Boston, an American expat with a criminal past sailing around the Caribbean with his two young sons. He'd given the couple a ride on his boat called the Justin B just before they died. But it wasn't until 2016 that Boston was finally arrested and charged with their murders, only for him to die in prison a few months later before he could be tried. In Paradise, presenter Stephen Nolan and reporter Dan Maudsley tried to get to the truth of who killed Chris and Peter. Was the case against Boston as clear-cut as it seemed, and could the evidence of his two sons, Vince and Russ, be relied upon? Peter and Chris had boarded the Justin B around the 10th of June, and this section of her letter to her mum was written on the 29th of June. So they've now been on board the boat for two and a half weeks, and Peter's enthusiasm is wearing thin. Another reason I wouldn't mind ending my sailing career now, and I'm down as a sailor on the papers, is the two sons of Duane. They are 12 and 13 years, but behave more like 8 and 9, and I find I have no patience at all with them. 
Of course, they squabble most of the time, and now I see how irritating we must have been in that respect. But on a boat, there's nowhere you can go. What makes it worse is that Duane curses and puts them down continually. There was a, a lot of squabbles, you know, my dad drinking Jamaican rum, and uh, we concocted this drink that he really liked with uh, Jamaican rum and some fresh limes and I forget what else we put in it, some coconut, I think, and he called it. He named it after the boat, the Justin B. drink. He would drink these Justin B's and Anytime he would drink alcohol, he would become a total asshole, very mean. To so, you and your brother? To anybody. He would always start fights with whoever. Um, but yeah, to me and my brother, yell and scream at us at, uh, like I didn't know how to tie a bowl in. Like, how am I supposed to know how to tie knots? I didn't, uh, you know, I'm not a military person or a Navy person. I, You're a child. I was a child, and uh, I, I didn't even, I had a book about the Boy Scouts, but I wasn't a Boy Scout. I, but it wasn't like, here, here's how to tie a bowling, and now you do it. It's like he would scream at me that I didn't know it, or he'd scream at Russ that he, if he was hungry, he would yell at my brother Russ and say, make some f-ing rice. And we call him Rice instead of Russ. Make some rice, Rice. And scream at him until he was crying. No wonder then that Peter's thoughts are turning to home. It's nearly July already. It must be getting quite warm in England. I hope you've been swimming. Did I hear that there's going to be a general election? I haven't seen a newspaper for weeks and the BBC World News doesn't give much about the UK. At seven o'clock we have a relay of the World News from the BBC in London, uh, providing reception conditions are favorable. And uh, then we're going to have the weather report, and we have the children's program. I often wonder what everyone's doing, and I feel very cut off, but letters are too difficult as I never know where I'm going to be next. There are no more entries in Peter's letter past the 29th of June, which is why the FBI give the time frame for Chris and Peter's murders as being between the 29th of June and the 8th of July, when the bodies are found. But we can probably narrow things down a bit further than that, as we think that they left Hunting Key alive on the 1st of July. Now... By this stage, Peter had already decided that Costa Rica was a sail too fast, so she planned to leave the boat along with Chris at their next port of call, uh, Puerto Cortes in Honduras. On paper, this is a, quite a short sail south, uh, but while on Hunting Key, they received some fateful advice. Talking to the lighthouse keeper, this is the worst time for sailing, and our next sail to Puerto Cortes in Honduras would be very hard, so it seems. We may easily decide to go to Livingston in Guatemala instead, which is a simple sail with a wind behind us. If we do, I shall leave the Justin B and get a ferry to Puerto Cortes and a plane from Honduras to New Orleans. So as I've mentioned, we haven't interviewed Vince's brother, Russell, but he is quoted in Penny's book about her brother Chris and Peter's murders called Dead in the Water. The book came out right in the middle of our research for this podcast and has helped fill in many of the gaps in Vince's memory. Now, what Russell is quoted as saying in the book 
is that it's this decision to switch route which causes a row that sets their journey on a fatal course. Russell's account in the book is that Chris and Peter had agreed to pay $500 to his dad for passage to Honduras. But now Boston's sailing them to Livingston in Guatemala, a country they don't have visas to enter and is 50 miles west, as the crow flies, of where they want to be. Naturally, Chris wants to renegotiate the fee, but Boston is adamant they still owe the full 500 And now he's getting more and more inebriated. We were uh, anchored out, and there was um, a port nearby. Kind of shallow, very shallow water, but it's very clear. And um, it was a be- beautiful, nice day. And, you know, it's, it's aside from all the screaming from my dad, and he was yelling at Russ, and I guess Peter and Chris, especially Chris, had enough of it. And he said, hey, stop. That's enough. Leave him alone. And that's one thing that my dad did not tolerate is I can be a total asshole to my children. I can do anything I want with them. But if you tell me that I'm not being a good parent, then I'm going to come after you. And so he told him, don't you tell me how to raise my children. He's like, you. And he comes after Chris and tries to swing at him and hit him. And Chris ducked out of the way and he missed and fell into the water. You know, I mean, we were jumping into the water all the time, so it was no big deal. We lived in the water, basically, scuba diving, spearfishing and stuff, you know, but um, I think it was just, he was humiliated. And then so So Peter and Chris were laughing at him and said, maybe that'll cool you off, you know? So your father's you. your father's in the water, humiliated, drunk. Yes. And angry. That's when everything changed. That's when he started plotting. He became very quiet. Well, we knew when he was quiet like that that it wasn't a good thing. What happened? After that, you know, he sobered up and we carried on. And I guess in their eyes, things were okay. It was normal as usual. And, uh, but he called Russ and I together and said, we've got to get rid of these people. And I didn't know what he meant. He said, I want you guys to hide all the knives in the galley. No knives, no sharp objects. I'm like, this is kind of weird. What's going on? This is weird. But you do not argue with my dad. You just kind of do what you're told. You and Ross are together. Your father says, we need to get rid of these people. What's in your head? I thought he was going to drop him off at a port or something. So he was humiliated and he just had enough. I didn't really think that much of it. Hide the knives? What was that about? I didn't know. I had no idea what... That was weird. And did you and Russ hide them? 
I hid one or two of them. We didn't have that many. And I remember that Pita said, where's all the cutlery? She wanted to cut a fish or something. And I'm like, what's cutlery? I don't know what that word is. We don't really use that word a lot in the United States. At least we didn't. And she said, the knives, where's the knives? And we just had to play dumb. But he obviously was planning ahead that he didn't want these knives available. So um, he had a book on poisonous plants around the world. And we were pulling into this port. And he said, hey, um, I want you and Russ to find these, these certain kinds of bean pods, these kind of red and black berries or beans or something. And they grow in this area. And apparently they were poisonous. And we're like, why? Well, we told him we couldn't find any, so. So he's thinking of poisoning them, apparently. And we told him, sorry, we didn't see any. And did you deliberately not find any? Because you knew... We actually found some, but we told him we didn't. Because you knew what he was wanting to do. I've done some research, and these beans are, like, very extremely poisonous. So you were trying to save Chris and Peter from the monster who is your father? We lied to him and told him we couldn't find him. Some of episode two of Paradise from BBC Radio 5 Live called Death in Paradise, hosted and produced by Dan Maudsley and Stephen Nolan. And thanks to Dan and to Susan McKean for letting me share that with you. The Cut is the section of New York magazine that's targeted at, quote, women with stylish minds, end quote. Visit its website today and you'll find stories covering politics, relationships, work and equality, alongside beauty, style and fashion tips. Its podcast, The Cut on Tuesdays, covers similarly wide-ranging territory. It features profiles of inspirational women doing interesting stuff, together with stories about abortion, divorce, sexual harassment and motherhood. And there's plenty of room for the lighter stuff too, like an unrequited lust for Adam Driver and bad dinner parties. Here's a couple of clips from a recent episode dealing with the issue of family money, those who have it and those who don't, starting with someone who's used to flying around in private jets and who knows what it's like to have more money than you can spend. Abigail Disney is an Emmy-winning documentary filmmaker, and she's also the granddaughter of Roy O. Disney, who co-founded the Walt Disney Company with her great-uncle, Walt. Abigail remembers that when she was a kid, her mom was always vague about the family's wealth. I remember saying to her one night, what class are we? Uh-huh. You know, and she said, oh, middle. <laughs> and then she said, upper middle. <laughs> upper, upper middle. That's where she settled. Upper, upper middle. <laughs> she just couldn't say, you know, upper. Abigail's dad had followed in his dad's footsteps. He worked at Disney, and the family lived right down the street from Disney Studios. She went to school with other kids whose parents worked in film and lived in a neighborhood that had been filled with Hollywood types for decades. We lived in this place called Toluca Lake. 
it was built in the 1920s by like a Hollywood property developer. It was a fake lake. Mm -hmm. And they brought in swans to live on the lake. And at the end of the lake, there was a golf course. And then there were pretty big houses around it that had all been bought by 20s movie people. So W.C. Fields lived on the lake. Amelia Earhart lived on the lake. The house that we lived in had been built by the guy who directed Marx Brothers films. Oh, wow. And W.C. Fields, every time he saw a swan, would come out with a shotgun. Oh, God. <laughs> and, and he would scare the swans away. So every, like, year they would bring in new swans. Yeah. And even long after W.C. Fields was dead, oh, my God. the swans would just fly off. It was like they all knew genetically yeah. that somebody was going to shoot them. Bob Hope lived in the neighborhood for years. Ronald and Nancy Reagan had their wedding reception there. And Abigail's family's house was one of the big ones. So we would get two doorbell rings from everybody who trick-or-treated from us because it was such a long distance from the front door to the back door. It all added up to a particular kind of childhood. We had a lemon tree in the backyard, and, and it was called the martini tree. <laughs> we left scotch for Santa. At first... Abigail had no idea there was anything out of the ordinary about her family. I remember when my Uncle Walt died in 1966, and uh, they took us out of class, and they brought us to the principal's office, and they said, we're so sorry to tell you your uncle died, and we were like, which one? I don't know. <laughs> so I had never really actually thought of him as anything other than another uncle. Yeah. Um, and then I remember seeing the cover of Time magazine, and I thought, well, that's interesting. Do all uncles end up on the cover? <laughs> yeah, exactly. After Walt died, Abigail's grandfather ran the company for a while. But after he died, what had once been a family business became something much bigger. Abigail watched as Disney grew into a corporate behemoth, an operation with fighting shareholders and soaring stock prices. And as the business got bigger, Abigail's family went from being merely rich to being extremely rich. My parents, you know, bought a plane when I was about 16 or something, and it was like a little plane with propellers, and they thought they were a big deal, and it was really exciting. We had this guy who flew us around on it, and it was nice, but it didn't get anywhere very fast. Yeah. So we bought a jet, but it was like the worst jet made. <laughs> it, was like, it was a jet, but it was the worst it jet. It was. It was just not a classy jet. It <laughs> didn't have thrust reversers, and so, you know, it, you couldn't land on certain kinds of runways and whatever else. So um, then he got a bigger jet that had seats for, like— 14, 16 people and a flight attendant now, and you could actually stand up in it, you know, and all sorts of exciting things. Um, so he was feeling like you could see it. You could see you could see him expand into the space he was giving himself. Um, and always there was this pressure from people around him like, but so-and-so has a bigger plane. You know, there's always a bigger plane. And, um, and then they bought a 737. The end of Abigail's childhood arrived in the form of a family tradition. It was something her older siblings had already experienced. If you grow up in a family with some money, you've got a longtime family attorney, and he's always like an uncle to you, and the accountant is kind of like an uncle to you, and, and so it's, it's a weird thing. And uh, he would take us out to lunch when we were 18 and tell us how much money we had. It was a lot to take in. My older sister actually had a blood sugar problem, um, and she, he told her, and then she fainted. Oh, God. Life inside the Disney clan's a long, long way from the financial issues that affected the politician Stacey Abrams growing up. Last year, she became the first black woman nominated for a governorship in any US state, narrowly losing the race as a Democrat running in a deeply Republican electorate. But at various points in her life, she's also been hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. 
So I had this credit card, and I thought, I'm going to buy myself a TV. And it was the biggest expense I'd ever had uh, other than college. Yeah. When I finished law school, I had to fill out this form uh, in order to sit for the bar exam. You have to fill out a form for financial fitness, or Mm -hmm. it's a moral fitness test, but they look at your finances. And I had to list every debt. Mm. And I pulled my credit report for the first time. I mean, I owe tens of thousands of dollars, yeah, mostly because of interest rates. And there are a lot of people who were mad at me. So what did, what did like, just on a literal level, that credit report look like the first time you saw it? It was really amazing because I'm looking at what the credit limit was and what I owed. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I'd been paying for that television for six years. It wasn't that nice a TV. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was good, but it should not have cost that much money. And like any young person who didn't have a lot of economic background, I hadn't paid every debt. Yeah. I hadn't paid my bills regularly. I paid when I had it. If my student loan didn't come in on time, then they didn't get paid. And they didn't come and take the TV back. So, okay. Seems like this is working. Exactly. Yeah. And so I had to clear up every single debt that I had outstanding other than student loans in order to uh, become a a lawyer in the state of Georgia. Stacy still had her student loans to pay off, but she'd taken care of her credit card debt. And after law school and the bar, she became a tax lawyer. She was making $95,000 a year, enough money to support herself and help her parents out, too. Then, a few years into her career, Hurricane Katrina hit. At this point, her parents were both working as ministers in Mississippi, and after Katrina, Stacy says their church couldn't afford to pay a full salary anymore. The right thing to do was obvious to her. She was going to support them, even if it meant taking on more debt. When Katrina hit, it was around the time that my younger brother was having more troubles with uh, drug abuse, and I'd been paying. I, I was the primary person who supported his uh, rehab, so he'd been in and out of rehab, which is an extraordinarily expensive proposition that after my niece was born and my parents adopted her and she became part of it, uh, there was a period of time where I actually claimed my family as dependents. I was the head of household. Wow. Because, and and I didn't want to do it. In fact, I didn't do it for several years until my accountant looked at me and said, this is stupid. And then I called my mom and dad and I said, well, mom, my accountant says I should count you as dependents. And I'm I'm like, I don't want to do it if it's going to be. My mother's like, why haven't you done this already? (laughs) Why didn't you want to? (laughs) Because... It seemed a usurpation of their response, of their role. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a tax write-off for me. It was my job. My parents gave me an extraordinary life, and it was my responsibility to do what I could. And I was making more money than anyone I knew. Yeah. <laughs> and so why not? But even though Stacy was making more money than anyone she knew, that money still wasn't enough to cover everything. She was dealing with the expenses of her brother's rehab, of her niece's care, and of her parents' day-to-day life. They used my credit cards. I was credit worthy enough that I had a lot of credit available and I used it. Yeah. And for a lot of people, that usage collapses in on you. The credit card debt was mounting and so was the money she owed in taxes on her small business. Then she got the news that her dad would need cancer treatment. So like the tax attorney that she was, she called the IRS to figure something out. And so I went on a payment plan because I'm not going to lose my father. And as I say, you know, I can defer tax payments. I cannot defer saving my dad's life. Yeah. Uh, That then led to me having outstanding tax debt. Last year, when Stacey was running for governor, she knew her finances were going to become public. At that point, 
She owed $50,000 in deferred tax payments and $170,000 in credit card and student loan debt. For me, I knew I had a long-term plan to pay it back. Uh But (laughs) under Georgia law, I had to report where I was at a certain point in time. And that meant that I had to report that tax debt and credit card debt. Yeah. As well as owing a lot of people for my education. Some of an episode of The Cut on Tuesdays called Family Money. And I spoke to the show's host, Molly Fisher, about The Cut's approach to storytelling. I think on the show, what we try to do is basically give free reign to all the things that we can't stop talking about or we're excited to have conversations about. The things we're talking about with our friends, the things we're worrying about privately and wish we had an outlet for. And I think, you know, one thing that that has been very fruitful for us is things that make people feel embarrassed. I think there's something really <laughs> exciting and liberating about <laughs> about talking about things that make people a little bit uncomfortable. And certainly family money goes to that. But we cover a range of stuff from, you know, culture and style and literature to politics to personal stories to, you know, big original reported pieces it runs the gamut. It really does. I mean, I guess when I was reading about the cut and it's dealing with fashion and beauty, it probably gives you a particular idea of what the show is about. But the more you listen to it, I mean, I was listening to a great story yesterday all about an immigration detention centre. Oh, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's got a really, really broad gamut of subjects you deal with. Where do the guests come from? Are they people that journalists have spoken to in connection with other stories that they push push them your way? Or how do you find them? Well, I mean, we have a team of producers, but also one of the nice things about being affiliated with The Cut and with New York Magazine is that we're also able to draw on the institutional expertise and connections and journalistic firepower that we've got there. So, You know, for example, um, there was a piece earlier this year that was a a cover story of the magazine by the writer Lisa Miller about menopause and schizophrenia and the relationship between estrogen and women's mental health that had been, yes, a cover story for the magazine. And then we got Lisa to help us adapt that into a story for the show. So we had her talking about why she got interested in it in the first place and like having us go back to some of her sources to tell their stories and you know, talking to experts who she'd spoken to. So we're able to kind of draw on a bunch of different resources. And also, we honestly, part of what's been most fun about this show for me is just that the reason I like my job at The Cut, where I've worked for now about six years, just over six years, I guess, is that I'm basically talking people who are smart and funny all day. We have an amazing team of women who work on the site and some men, a couple men, and translating those conversations into a podcast has been just so much fun. And so getting to use the funny, smart, insightful, interesting, weird people I work with every day in this way has been really fun. I mean, I think that was really the forefront of our episode about being horny, another embarrassing topic, but one on which our <laughs> our staff had many, many great yeah, thoughts Yeah, I didn't realise Adam Driver was quite so popular, but my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm told after that episode came out, a couple of people who live in the same neighbourhood has him, told me that when they see him walking around in the neighbourhood, he looks deflated, that it's very <laughs> disappointing in person compared oh, no. to <laughs> the idea of Adam Driver that we were putting forth. Yeah. And so you were working in print primarily, though, when the idea of the podcast 
came along. Is that right? Or Web had you done? Print. Yeah, uh, have Web you done podcasting print, at all? So no audio. Not. So was that a big readjustment mm. for you, or how, how did that go? Yeah, it was totally weird. <laughs> 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 what did you have to I start? Mean, because it probably is a very different discipline. Because I, mean, I mean, I know in audio we sometimes go, oh, it would be a great print story, but it's just not mm-hmm. going to work in audio. And you have the opposite problem, I guess, where you know something, yeah, something that's going to work in print because the person's fascinating and interesting might not work in audio because the person's just deathly dull and is very poor talent. Totally, totally, it's really hard. I mean, I think it's been it's been exciting to realize that there are things we maybe you wanted to try to do in prose or in, you know, in writing that didn't end up quite working out and that we can now try to adapt into new forms or that we now have sort of like a new outlet to like funnel our ideas into. And I think also it's been a learning curve for me, certainly, to figure out what things do and do not work in audio versus in print. I mean, I think um, one thing that I has come up not infrequently is that so, so often I think at New York and at the cut and, you know, maybe arguably to some degree on a lot of the internet, so much of what you read is arguments, basically. It's like opinion, it's ideas and essays and kind of, you know, if people want to be dismissive, hot takes. And that is not something that <laughs> makes a lot of sense in the context of audio. But I do think we've kind of had some luck figuring out a way to translate our interest in in essay-driven, sort of opinion-driven things into audio. You know, when you see something like the episode we did on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or um, the episode we did on likability and female politicians – those are ones where you kind of had an argument we were making or like an idea we were trying to get at from a bunch of different angles. But it was a matter of figuring out how you sort of build an argument through lots of different voices as opposed to just sitting down at your computer and typing a blog post. Molly Fisher, the host of The Cut on Tuesdays from New York Magazine and Gimlet Media. You're listening to the Podcast Hour on RNZ National. Maggie Huff emailed me at pods at rnz.co.nz to tell me about one of her favourite shows, Something Rhymes with Purple. It's an informative and amusing look at language hosted by two word nerds, Susie Dent and Giles Brandreth, who are also regulars on the long-running British quiz show Countdown. In this episode, they reflect on whips, filibusters and some of the other strange expressions used around Parliament. Don't turn off, but today we're talking about politics. Yes, politics. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, Something Rhymes with Purple. With me, Susie Dent, and Giles Brandreth, who's sitting opposite me in my kitchen, which, as we've established in previous previous episodes, is full of bananas and not much else, hence the echo. So forgive us for that. But I love a banana. You love a banana. And I told you, last time we were together... When you said, what word would I have tattooed on my body if I was to have a tattoo? And I'm not planning to, but I'd have the word yeks because I discovered it when I used to play a lot of Scrabble and found it to be a very useful Scrabble word, Y-E-X. And I, you couldn't guess what it was. You thought when I gave you multiple choice, it was part of a horse's hoof. And I told you it's a kind of a hiccup, an old word for a hiccup. And you doubted that. But you've done your homework since what is a yeks? Yeah, well, it is a hiccup, although the first meaning was a sob, 
or a gasp or a gulp. Oh. So it kind of evolved from there into um, a hiccup. It goes back to our Germanic invaders and the German Gescon, I guess, which is Old High German, meaning to yawn. So there oh, it goes. So it's I... like sternutation, which is also yawning. And how do you spell it? Y-E-X? Y-E-X, or originally it was Y-E-S-K, yesk. Well, I got one over on you last week with Yex, mm. and I think you're going to get one over on me this week because what I want to ask you is this. I've long told this story. Uh, I, as you know, I was a Member of Parliament uh, briefly in the 1990s, and I loved telling the story as a consequence of uh, the lines on the floor of the Chamber of the House of Commons. The two, When you're speaking in a debate, if you picture the House of Commons, the Chamber of the House of Commons, you will know that people are opposite one another. And if you've looked closely at the green carpet, you'll see there's a thin red line in front of each of the two front benches. Well, when I arrived in Parliament, it was explained to me that members of Parliament don't shake hands with one another. This is because the origin of chivalry you was the handshake came to show that you were friends. You didn't, you know, because at the House of Commons we're all honourable members, we don't need to make that proof. So there are no handshakes in the House of Commons and uh, no swords, no daggers, because we're all there as friends. And they take this very seriously. And in the Chamber of the House of Commons, there are these two thin red lines up between the two front benches. And those two, th- and you mustn't step over the lines in a debate. And the two thin red lines are an exact distance apart. The distance is the distance of two outstretched arms and two full-length swords. So in the House of Commons, sword fighting is not allowed. Sword fighting is strictly taboo. Backstabbing, of course, is quite a different matter. Anyway, the <laughs> point is that those two thin red lines, I used to say you had to stay behind them or you'd be ruled out of order. That was the origin of the expression towing the line. That is what I thought. I hate being the party pooper. Oh. Everything I do, I'm the party pooper. The one that comes along and says, pop to your balloon. I'm sorry about this. The OED would disagree a little bit and that they think it originated in the US. You know, so many things that we think of being quintessentially British end up being American, like stiff upper lip was American in origin, believe it or not. I mean, honestly, you couldn't get more Stephen Fry, could you, than stiff upper lip. Um, Toe the line, it says US 1813, and it started off as towing the mark and then towing the line... 1834, all to do with being on a ship. Oh, actually, it's to stand in a row. I'm reading the OED here. Um, And then to present oneself in readiness for a race contest or undertaking. So that was the first, so actually to be at the starting line um, rather than sort of be behind, you know, a a line and then conform to the required standards. So it's kind of shifted over time. Is this one true? In the bag, because as you'll see, if you're standing as you come into the House of Commons, you'll see the Speaker is on a dais at the other end. Mm-hmm. What you don't see is behind the Speaker's chair is a, a, a literally a physical bag uh, that you can put petitions in. And the expression was putting things in the bag. It's in mm-hmm. the bag meant I've delivered this petition to Parliament. It's in the bag. The bag does exist behind the speaker's chair. Is that the origin of the expression, it's in the bag? (laughs) Pause for effect. Pause for flinching on my part. According to my dictionary, um, it's a game bag. So it's 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 like if you're out poaching or if you're um, officially shooting game, which I wouldn't ever recommend, you would put your booty in the bag, in the game bag, apparently. According to this. 
Fine start to my week, two of my favourite <laughs> no, stories from Parliament. Is, obviously, they've had then a, a wonderful life in the political sphere, so it's, that doesn't, it doesn't discount them at all. It's just that their origins might have been slightly different. Well, tell me about parliamentary terms, parliamentary language, stuff that really does genuinely have its origins in the world of politics and Parliament. OK, well, I'll start off with uh, Roman times um, and the word candidate. A uh, candidate is a relative of a candida, which most people will think of when they think of thrush. Let's move on quickly. Um, or being candid is white, basically. Candid is meant white. And it goes back to Roman wannabes for public office who would wear white, pristine white togas in order to symbolise their purity and integrity, which quite often wasn't the case. Amazing. Um, so they would swan around in white togas and they were the original white clad candidates. So a candidate is a white-clad person who is purer than pure, literally whiter than white. That is amusing. Martin Bell, wasn't he? He had had the white suit. He was. He stood as an independent uh, in the 1997 election against uh, Neil Hamilton. That's right. Because there had been allegations made uh, of sleaze against Neil Hamilton. Yes, that's right. It was the decade of sleaze. Uh, And that was, oh, yes, and he was elected. Mm. And I think then even possibly re-elected. The man in the white suit. That's Mm. why he wore the white suit. I don't know if that's why he wore it, but it was a nice link. Well, it was his, like I used to have colourful jumpers, Martin Bell had white suits. But isn't that amusing? They're purer than pure. Look at the candidates now for anything. Well, anyway, on we go. So that's the origin <laughs> okay, of so Give me another one. This is interesting. And then in Roman times, they would walk about in order to canvass their votes. And the um, Latin for walking about was ambire. It's linked to ambulare, with the idea of ambulance being ambulant. Uh, it's linked to ambient. There's so many words in English. Anyway, they would walk about canvassing their votes and they were ambitious. Um, so ambition goes back to those Roman candidates who walked around in search of votes from the I'm slack-mouthed. The origin of the word ambition relates to politics, the candidates ambulating, showing their ambition. Yes. That's where it all began. Yes. Oh, Boris, there's nothing new. Of course, (laughs) he might have known this because I think he's a bit of a classicist. He's also a throttle bottom, which is another great political epithet that I love. That's a bit personal. I I do think that Boris is a bit of a throttle bottom. Um, if he'll forgive me. Uh, Throttle Bottom is a bumbling, slightly inept person in public office. Snollygoster. Forgive me, what is the origin of Throttle Bottom? Throttle Bottom um, was, it's a very good question. It's the name of a character. Um, is it a Victorian novel of some kind? Is it a Dickens character? It's not Dickens. I'm looking at Mr Throttle Bottom. I'm look at my search history in this. Uh, it's The Book of The I Sing by George Kaufman. Kaufman. And Mr. Alexander Throttlebottom runs for Vice President of the United States, and I imagine he was rather inept. George S. Kaufman was a brilliant American humorist who wrote movies and plays. Hmm. Uh, I happen to know that, so I'm throwing it in. And he created Mr. Throttlebottom. He did. What was the other one you mentioned? I think I've heard you say this before. Snollygoster. I've definitely, definitely mentioned What's a Snollygoster? Snollygoster is an entirely corrupt politician. Ah, well, we don't know any of those. So... We don't know any of those. It goes back to uh, an old US word, Snallygaster, who was a mythical monster that would eat children and a bit like Bugbear, which was a, a similar thing. Parents would use the presence or the or the imminent presence of the Bugbear or the Snallygaster as a warning to their kids. If they didn't do what they were told, they would be eaten by the Snallygaster. 
Some of Something Rhymes with Purple, hosted by Susie Dent and Giles Brandreth, produced by Paul Smith for Something Else. And thanks a lot for the tip, Maggie. If you've got a favourite podcast to share, please email me at pods at rnz.co.nz and I'll try my best to feature it on a future show. Nice Try is a seven-part series looking at the elusive idea of utopia, a perfect societal place, and how this concept's been interpreted at various points in history, from Hitler's plans for Berlin to enclosed biospheres populated by environmentalists. And spoiler alert, some kind of failure or disappointment usually awaits when the vision meets the reality. The show's hosted and produced by Avery Truffleman. She usually works on the popular design podcast 99% Invisible. And she did a spin-off show last year called Articles of Interest that we featured on the podcast hour. It's all about the history of clothing, from Hawaiian shirts to tartan. This is from the episode of Nice Try about Chandigarh. It's a city in northern India, designed in the 1950s by a very famous architect at the request of India's first Prime Minister, Jawaharlal Nehru. Somehow, Nehru ropes in the canonical king of modernism, the mononymous Elvis of architecture, Le Corbusier. Le Corbusier was one of the architects who truly established the aims and goals of modernism. And this is the guy who said the house is a machine for living in. His work looked like machinery. No space for kitsch and clutter. He was renowned for his soaring yet austere concrete buildings, as well as his signature round spectacles and bow tie. He'd been a leader in the field since 1905. But by 1950, the Swiss-born architect was leaning towards the end of his career. Le Corbusier, we're also going to call him Corb or Corbu, isn't immediately in on Chandigarh. He would have to move to India, and he sticks up his nose a bit at the idea of a salary paid on an Indian government scale. But then, Corb comes up with an idea. Pierre Jeanneret, his cousin, who is also an architect. And he told Jeanneret that, here, this way, why don't you go to India and you be me in India? Corbu and Jeanneret are partners, and also kind of rivals, because they're different in every way. Corb is six feet something, Genere just over five feet. Genere is quiet, in contrast with the stubborn loudness of Corbu. And unlike Corbu, Pierre Genere is well-liked. And I've heard you call, uh, call him PJ. Did everyone call him PJ? Yes, yes, in India, <laughs> uh, everybody called him PJ, yeah, PJ. I don't know if they meant pajamas, but no. But PJ, he was known as PJ. Uh, He was known as the saint and the ascetic. PJ signs on and heads to his post in India to fulfill Corbu's vision. Because Corbu had made the master plan. Well, he felt that a city is like a human body. And and, uh, that's why he put the capital complex on the north, which is the head or the brain, where the largest amount of activity takes place uh, in the human body. This is Mac Serene. My name is Manmohan Lal Serene. But all friends uh, call me Mac. Mac is a lawyer in Chandigarh. He's lived there since he was six. His family moved there before it was built. My father was also a lawyer, and uh, he used to practice uh, in Lahore, which is now a part of Pakistan, in the Lahore High Court. And when partition took place in 1947, at very short notice, uh, my parents and my elder three siblings had to leave. 
Mac's father would eventually work in this Capitol complex, the head of the body, with all the state institutions, like the High Court and the Secretariat. This head is designed by Korb. Picture austere, soaring concrete that towers over people, punctuated with the occasional swath of red, yellow, orange, and green paint, kind of like accent walls. To adjust for local climate, Le Corbusier adds overhangs that deflect sunlight and enormous reflecting pools designed to cool the buildings, although eventually they also had to add air conditioning. One side of the legislative building looks like a concrete hull of a ship resting on massive piers. There's no mistaking that this is the head of the city. And then, according to Corb's plan, below that is the stomach. The stomach is the commercial center, which is sector 17. And then there are the limbs. The two limbs were the university uh, on the one side and the industrial area on the other. And the lungs. Throughout the city, you have these uh, green belts, as we call them. These rows of gardens and trees to give you a space to breathe. So that is, that is the basic concept, and it's like a human body, and I think it works extremely well. The rest of the city was designed to house about 500,000 people living in distinct, self-sufficient neighborhoods. Each neighborhood would have its own shops, schools, health centers, recreation centers, and up to 14 categories of housing, including single-family houses, duplexes, row houses, hostels, and student housing. All of these, everything that wasn't the head, is designed by PJ along with the English architects Maxwell Fry and Jane Drew, with the assistance of a team of nine Indian architects, which includes Vikram Prakash's dad. And that's how my father came into the project, too, because he was in London. So he wrote to Maxwell Fry and said, you know, I I hear you've got this project, uh, and I want to return to India. And together, this team of architects design every single thing about the city. Not just the lungs and the limbs and the stomach— but the hair and the nails and the skin cells, so to speak. So what the architects did was that they would, you know, they would master plan the city in the morning and design the uh, the buildings basically in the afternoons, which was their day job. And, uh, and, and you know, I'm, I'm sort of being rhetorical here a little bit, but basically in the evening after scotch, they would de- design the furniture because that was just the simplest and easiest way to get the furniture built. Part of the visual language of the city was to be its furniture. And not only those wooden chairs, tables, lamps, all the interiors, and the government buildings, and the schools, and the offices, all the public spaces, so that the city could be a complete vision, something beautiful and cosmopolitan, both indoors and out. And there was a more practical motivation to designing the furniture themselves. The reason why all this furniture came into being was because that was the cheapest way to furnish the buildings. It was cheaper to design and have the furniture locally built rather than buy off-the-shelf furniture. So all the architects got to work designing chairs. And even if it's over scotch, it's not done carelessly. These had to be standardized chairs that could be made quickly with local materials and very easily replicable and cheap. So of course, they need to be designed well. This is like real DIY IKEA, a style made accessible to the masses. You know, the vision of total and complete modernity. From the modernist's perspective, the standard chair was always an ergonomic chair. They had to be chairs perfect for the human body, 
that would be the healthiest to sit in and also the most beautiful and efficient and sturdy enough for everyday use. That was the goal of modernism, the goal of Shendigar, to make something clean and neutral and good for everyone. Some of the Nice Try podcast from Curbed and the Vox Media Podcast Network hosted by Avery Truffleman. And that's about it from the podcast hour for now, as well as Nice Try. This week we've been listening to Paradise, The Cut on Tuesdays, and Something Rhymes with Purple. Next time you hear something good, share it with me at pods at rnz.co.nz or on Twitter at RNZ Podcast Hour. And until next time, from me, Richard Scott, happy listening and enjoy the rest of your weekend. See you. Thank you.